This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Growing our own food, re-envisioning our communities, concepts of social justice and land access, as well as reclaiming urban land for ecological purposes. These are threads that are all high in our cultural consciousness right now. This week, we hear about an organization bringing all of these concepts together. Patricia Spence is the president and CEO of Boston's Urban Farming Institute. I sat on a panel with Patty in March of this year at a symposium on women and cultivating space, hosted by Harvard's Arnold Arboretum. I caught up with Patty more recently to see how life at this time was going for this growing organization. I'm really pleased to welcome Patty from her office at the Urban Farming Institute's headquarters, where you can hear the life of the city going on around her as we speak. Welcome, Patty. Hi, how are you? I am well. I'm well, well enough. It's a very interesting time. It was a very interesting time when we first met one another, which I think was March like 9th for the symposium on women in horticulture and cultivating space at Harvard's Arnold Arboretum this last late winter, early spring. Uh, it was cold. The COVID-19 was really starting to take hold. And you and I and several others, yep. as well as a really great audience, um, braved all of those conditions to get together in person, um, which is when I first met you and learned of your work. And I'm really excited to share it with the audience today. How are you? More to the point. Uh, well, because um, I'm working with farmers right now, um, with all that is going on, there is no better place to be with hands in the dirt. Yeah. Uh, so our farmers are, are growing tons of food for our community, and it's the best place for us to be. To give us a quick overview on what the Urban Farming Institute is. Well, right now, and there is a little bit of history, uh, if you're looking at me personally, uh, gardening, growing in general, both flowers and vegetables. Um, I know this from my grandfather. Uh, he immigrated from uh, Jamaica and uh, lived in Boston, in a neighborhood in Boston. And I have memories of plants uh, being all over the place uh, through throughout their house, my grandparents' house. I'll also say that uh, about once a year, during a school, during usually the school week, uh, my brother and I, we, they would wake us up. It could be 10 o'clock at night on a school week, and we'd all have to bundle into the car to, to go to uh, my grandparents' house to see the night-blooming Sirius, which would take, of course, three to four hours to open up. I, I, I couldn't understand it as a child, but I understand it as an adult. He actually, it was a placemaking opportunity. Friends and family, neighbors would all come over to watch this, this beautiful plant uh, flower open up. So, so that's my grandfather. My grandfather didn't talk a lot. He did not have conversation for people. He just loved his plants, more, probably more than anything else. And so that's, that's some of where it started. But he also was an active gardener in Boston. And for those that know Cape Cod, uh, on the coast, um, they, they had a summer house there as well, and uh, everything was both flowers and food. Mm. And so they pretty much, from blueberry bushes to raspberry bushes to every type of vegetable, 
Uh, that's how we ate. That, that's where a lot of our food came from. Yeah. And those earlier memories also transferred to my dad started growing in our backyard, another neighborhood in Boston. Both of my boys who are in their 20s learned how to grow. And now I'm growing, too, in the same backyard. Hmm. I'm in the house, actually, that I grew up in now. And I'm growing everything as well. That's great. I love that story of your grandfather. Both both my grandfathers were influential. And, you know, it doesn't have to happen that way. Our love and relationship with plants don't have to come to us in those earliest ages. But those early age memories are so sweet and foundational to who we later become, I think. Absolutely. And it, and it, and it actually passed through down to my mother as well. My mother is the African violet expert. And the, and the Christmas cactus expert. Oh. So, yeah, everybody's got their specialty. <laughs> you might have to give me her address because I, I'm struggling with one of my African violets right now. But that's, that's another conversation. Well, we'll do that. <laughs> um, so that is how you came to be interested, it, it sounds like, in your life. And, and it sounds like it was, it was something you valued and modeled to your sons who are now grown people. Describe how you came to be uh, president and CEO of the Urban Farming Institute and how long um, you have been there before we get into its history and mission. Well, I was actually the first employee. There was a grant that the board had put together uh, to, to get the first director, and that, and that was me. And um, I don't know, it certainly was not actually because of my uh, gardening capabilities, though that came from the packet. <laughs> Uh, two friends of mine that were on the board, uh, they were looking for someone that, for all intents and purposes, was a jack-of-all-trades, I think. Could do fundraising, marketing, um, you know, presentations, a little bit of everything, and that was me. And so that is what this particular job did need. Uh, so that's actually how I, I came on board <laughs> in the beginning. And what year was that? March 4th of 2014. All right, so give us the history of the Urban Farming Institute. Where is it? Why is it? Well, the Urban Farming Institute really, and the mission then and the mission today is really the same, is to develop and promote urban farming to engage individuals, neighbors in growing food and building a healthier community. But also within that mission is to teach uh, adults to become urban farmers. So that's really a key component of our mission as well. And we do that by running a full farm operation in, in, the, the, in the Urban Farming Institute. So where is that exactly? And what do the physical facilities and, and site consist of and look like? The Urban Farming Institute is growing on approximately six farm sites, and they're really micro farm sites in Boston. We're talking about uh, 10, 12, 13,000 square feet. So, so we do very intensive farming, and there's a, a certainly skill set that, that must be learned to do this type of, of farming. You've got to do a crop rotation each year. Um, you know, irrigation systems are a little bit different. It's, it's a different entity when you're doing this uh, uh, inside a city. Mm -hmm. We also, two years ago in April 2018, with wonderful partners, Historic Boston Incorporated, we were able to uh, restore um, a beautiful farm site. It was a farm 200 years ago. It was a 330-acre farm in Boston, so back in the day. 
So the original house dates back to 1786. The barn, original barn dates back to 1837. So we were able to completely restore this wonderful facility and it has become our headquarters. And it is basically, we call it the hub of urban farming um, in Boston. And Boston itself, the city has been wonderful to us. Many of the thought leaders of our organization, and this goes back to 2011, 2010, worked with the city of Boston to develop um, a program to basically legalize urban farming in Boston. Uh, for us, it's called Article 89, and, and now people can legally farm. We were the test case. Uh, the city of Boston allowed us to work on some land to see, you know, is this urban farming thing real? Can it really be done? And since then, we've had a wonderful relationship. Our farm, the Garrison Trotter Farm, was actually the first legal farm under Article 89. So our board, our staff is extremely diverse, the majority people of color, um, as well as our board. And we're all working on a mission to build a healthier community, to create uh, economic opportunity becoming, by becoming farm entrepreneurs, uh, to provide training so that folks leave us and are able to work in other food-related businesses, and then just creating a culture throughout our city, a culture of eating in a healthy manner. Yeah. And also in our areas, we, we often lack uh, key supermarkets. So this is another way through our farm stands that we can really feed folks really good, nutritious food, no chemicals, no pesticides, all done freshly. So as these neighborhoods became residential, as the city grew and developed out, it was a zoning issue that would have made a business of farming yeah. Illegal. Okay, I'm with you. Tell us any history you can of how the original board formed around this idea that they saw as a gap in these these neighborhoods. Well, it, it all actually, it, it, there was a distinct starting point here. The story we often tell, one of our board members who uh, had a, has a wonderful business called City Fresh Foods, Uh, was always concerned about uh, folks eating a a healthy meal and having healthy vegetables and good food and and how can we get uh, get that to people. So they they do a lot of work with um, kind of meals on wheels, foods for elders, uh, institutional uh, meals, etc. And um, the bottom line was, as he was walking to work one day in Roxbury, he was actually going through many vacant lots on his way uh, to work. And the the idea went through his head, why do I have to order mixed salad greens from California? Why Why can't I just use these vacant lots and actually grow food for the business? you know, and and clean up the lots and it's a better thing for the environment. And that's kind of, that's a piece of the impetus uh, that started all of this. And so he and many other thought leaders uh, certainly got together and, uh, you know, worked with our state legislature, et cetera. And that's how Article 89 came about. And again, as I said, uh, the city was able to uh, allow us at that time to work on a couple of vacant lots just to see if this experiment would work. And yes, it has. Yes, it has. 
Yes, it has. Okay, so tell us um, in that yes, it has. Describe for us the growth in these last six years since you, uh, they, you as a group sourced the grant that got you into a paid position to be doing this. I'm imagining when I say full time, the last time you and I corresponded by email, I think you'd been up for three days straight (laughs) doing some applications. And so when we say full time, this is not a nine to five Monday through Friday job like many plants people. This is a a calling and it is um, life. It is not work versus life. It is life. Yes, yes, absolutely. But uh, with all due respect, any any director of a nonprofit, this is what you do. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I'm true. no different. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> the world of nonprofit. You're, you're always working. <laughs> always working. You're always working. But no, this, this is a passion. Um, it's allowing us to do many things. So again, I was the first uh, director and immediately uh, started hiring people that actually were doing the farming um, experimentally. Um, so we started hiring people that also came out with the first urban farmer training program. That dates back to 2013. And at that time, and still is, it was a well-known, it was the crux of what we do, which is creating urban farmers. And yep. to date, we have graduated approximately 170 uh, wow. Urban farmers um, at different various means of urban farming. There's a short nine week course where people are basically in the classroom, and then we take X amount of uh, these are adults, students to be with us for 20 weeks in field, learning everything you need to know about setting up a farm from weeding to harvesting to planting to tilling, uh, marketing, distribution, product, everything. And just had three people start our program this past Monday. And this is the eighth, I think it's the eighth class at this point. But again, so that, that's been uh, certainly, and it's a well-known program at this point. So in the beginning for me, it, it was um, just ensuring that our farmer training program, you know, entered into its second year. The second year we had um, eight people for example, that uh, were in our infield program and probably about 20 people that were in our uh, nine-week program. But we do, I mean, at this point, I can tell you more of what we do since then as well, if you wish. Definitely. Uh, But first, I want to just, I want to pause for a second to celebrate that number of uh, the farmer trainees who have gone off into the world because their number might be what 170 you said 170 yeah and you think about the impact those people can have on another hundred people each at, at, you know, just by, I'm just, that's random math, but the impact that they have on training others, modeling to others, this same learning that they got in this incubator program and the impact is really phenomenal. And it, it is um, to the point where when, Others are looking for farmers. They actually actively call us to see what our graduates are doing. We've just gotten a recent request and, uh, you know, asking, are there any graduates that are available to help us start our farms? The reach is wide. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Since 2013, the Urban Farming Institute of Boston has been cultivating and supporting urban farmers and their communities. We'll be right back for more with Patty Spence, president and CEO. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So... The word incubation is the word I'm rolling around today. The various images it brings to mind, the ways in which we use the word and the ways in which we know it. A mother bird, some fathers too, sits on her clutch of eggs to keep them warm, to keep them safe, to roll them around so that they develop evenly while they grow in their shells. We incubate ideas and we incubate our own young. And in the last several years, the phrase farmer incubator program has become more and more common. The concept being to develop and train and support new farmers in our world as our existing established farmers age out of the work, as fewer children of farmers want to take on the life, and as small farms have been increasingly consolidated into large corporate farm holdings. Incubator farmer programs can be found around the country, and it brings to mind our previous conversations here with Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York, or a later one with Lindsay Lucher Shute of the National Young Farmers Coalition. Farmers, like gardeners, need to be grown in warm, safe, supportive environments. We, of course, also incubate disease. Another form of incubation high on our minds and in our fears for good reason right now. An incubation period refers to the period of time between when we are exposed and when an infection takes hold and expresses itself physiologically in our bodies. While we often don't have control over being exposed to germs in the subsequent incubation period, We do know that a healthy immune system and caring for our overall health gives us the best possible chances of successfully staving off disease or not incubating it at all. It's not 100%, but it improves our chances. I think about this, and then I think about what it takes to incubate a young farm or farmer or healthy, resilient community or healthier world in general. It takes time and attention and nourishment in the form of land, money, materials, care, and more time with liberal doses of patience and love. It occurs to me as I water and do a tiny bit of weeding under the very smoky skies of California's long fire season right now, which Experts widely agree has been exacerbated by decades and decades of fire suppression and hundreds of years of erasure and disconnection from the traditional ecological knowledge inherent in indigenous land care and management relationship. And it occurs to me that incubating a better body politic is just a few scales up the life ladder from incubating a healthier body. And I ask myself again and again, what is my garden and what am I as a gardener incubating? 
Patricia Spence is the president and CEO of the Urban Farming Institute based in Boston. Since the founding of the organization in 2013, the UFI has become a model for re-envisioning land in urban areas and training urban farmers to grow food, community health, and resilience. As we come back, Patty shares some individual farmer trainee stories. I think of Apollo uh, in the class of 2015. Now, interestingly enough, some people believe that, you know, these are folks maybe 20, 25 in college, out of college. That's kind of what I thought. Uh, but no, that was that was false. You have folks from all different age groups, all different backgrounds, uh, learning to farm for all different reasons. So if you take Apollo, for example, Apollo is a retired attorney. <laughs> so, you know, you're not thinking farming, right? Yeah. But it's a passion right. he's had uh, as a kid growing up in Puerto Rico. And it, that passion has always stuck with him. So I'm happy to say he graduated from 2015. He became our farm market manager. He also worked with another local uh, farmer's market. And then a friend of ours, the Codman Square Neighborhood Development Corporation, they were trying to figure out how to do a, a farm themselves. And they hired a past graduate from 2014 and then actually hired Apollo, I think, two or three years ago. Apollo is now running the Oasis on Baloo Farm right in the heart of uh, Dorchester. And he's doing wonderful things. And they have a wonderful building that, that they'll be building at some point to go along with the farm. But he's got all the neighbors there learning how to farm. And it's going to farmer's markets as well. It's so exciting. So but exciting. on top of it, he's also become one of the key thought leaders. So he's often asked to speak. He, he works with other collaboratives. Um, and so this is where it can go. Yeah. And we've had two other gentlemen from the class of 2014, Ronald and Chris. Uh, both of them actually had been unemployed. But they went through our programs, and they both ended up working for a place called the Commonwealth Kitchen, which is a food incubator, and this, which is where where they where the Commonwealth Kitchen, where they generate uh, space for all kinds of folks with creative food businesses, and many many people of color, I might add as well. Chris Mabel's in particular said at the end of the 2014 program, had it not been for the Urban Farming Institute. He had no idea what would have happened to him. He just had, he said basically it saved his life in his own words. He also went on to lose 100 pounds in that year. Wow. And for the first time, he knew what a real tomato tasted like. Oh. He always had store-bought tomatoes. So he became our nightshades slash tomato, tomato <laughs> expert. And, and, and. and passionate warrior for, right? <laughs> yes. And if you look at the people that are working for us now, uh, you'll see that we bring as many people back as possible. Our farm manager is class of the 2013. We just hired uh, another person that was working at a health center who, by the by, when he was at the health center, restarted the farm stand at the health center and then brought us in. We've been there for five years, but he wanted to get his hands back in the dirt so badly that we actually hired him uh, <laughs> mid-March. We hired him mid-March, but he was in that original class of 2013. Seasonal workers we've hired, seasonal farmers, 
Uh, Sabrina was with the class of 2017, Miguel with the class of 2019. So as you can see, we also, not only are people hiring the folks that have been trained through us, uh, but we very excitedly hire people back all the time as well. Yeah. These are kind of outcroppings of the Urban Farmer Training Program. You have a couple of other programs as well. Tell us about some of those. Oh, it's so it's so much fun. Um, number one, we have a full volunteer program. Now, of course, this year due to COVID-19, uh, we don't have volunteers this year. Uh, that we had to suspend. But uh, yeah. the last two years, we've had 750 volunteers to our sites, partially youth and partially adults from, you know, many major corporations, uh, other nonprofits uh, coming to work with us. And that helps us uh, with our farming. We have the Young Farmers Project. Due to COVID-19, we, we had to suspend that just for this summer. We hope to get right back to it. But that was a way to bring in our wonderful teens uh, to learn about farming in, in six weeks, basically in six weeks. And last year in particular, we were able to spend a lot of time working in conjunction with other teen farmers. And so we did some food justice work, social justice work. We would have uh, joint sessions where different teens could really get to know each other through this lens of uh, taking care of the environment and growing food and food justice. It was wonderful for six weeks. It was too short, too short. Uh, we also don't, we want to make sure we don't miss the babies. So we have an outreach program to our local schools and we'll bring a, you know, class of first graders or second graders in and they tour the farm. We give them a book on growing before they leave. They get to meet the staff. And uh, one of the funniest things last fall, we created a mock farm stand in, in the barn and they came with their quarters so they, they could buy something from the farm stand. But while they were there, uh, there were still carrots, certainly beets and other things in the ground. So uh, the tour consisted of, you know, understanding what's what's there, but pulling up carrots and pulling up beets and then letting them know this is what this is. And, you know, do you recognize it, et cetera? Can you tell from the top, the greenery on the top, what's underneath? So it was an entire exercise, and we're trying to do more of that to integrate what we do into the science and growing curriculums in Boston public schools. So that's kind of how we get to the youth. And the older students, fifth, fifth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth high school students, they'll also volunteer for the farm. Now, I believe if you're going to truly affect everybody and get everybody growing, you can't miss your seniors. You can't miss the seniors. So we started a program that we thought was just a 12-week program in April of 2018. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that Fit Around the Farm is still going because the seniors won't let us stop. <laughs> that program consists of an hour of chair yoga for health reasons and then an hour and a half of nutritional cooking uh, with a chef, a uh, diverse chef, and just teaching our seniors you know, how to use less salt how to drink more water, you know, put a slice of cucumber in the water, put a little mint in the water, um, and, and how to use the fresh vegetables. But we also do it with a flair. I mean, we have a lot of Caribbean folks in the class, so we're talking about food with a Caribbean flavor, Caribbean recipes, and it's all integrated on how to do it health, in a healthy manner and how to use more fresh vegetables, less canned food, more fresh vegetables, drink more water, etc. They had such a great time that when the pandemic hit, 
they were still asking us, when can they come to the farm? And we're like, no, you can't come to the right. farm. No, no. Right. But they kept asking and we were hesitant. You know, how are we going to get our seniors on Zoom? Well, I'm happy to say we have our seniors on Zoom. Oh, that's so good. And I just heard that uh, there was someone from Atlanta on the last session, too. <laughs> and, and it dawned on me. I said, well, while we're on Zoom, we don't. there's no limitations of space. Right. So if family and friends want to come on to join the seniors, why not? Why not? So we're really opening it up until we can all be together again. Right. The word that really pops out for me in what you were just saying is this idea of of integration. And it's really this gift of gardening for those of us who love it because it brings everything together. It it is this intersectional space that everybody can be in and it adds to the ecological health, the community health, that socialization, the strength of that for us as human beings creatures is so important. And I think the pandemic uh, both reminded us how important the garden was because so many of us were then out of offices and back in our homes. Um, But it, it also, for those of us who normally gardened and or gardened with groups, it reminded us how much the social aspect of gardening is also important. Now, in an earlier answer, when you were talking about the young farmer training and um, the importance of lighting up these next generations of growers and thought leaders and the the idea of food justice and social justice being a part of the ethos in what you are working on there. Will you please describe that? Well, uh, number one, overall, farmers, farmers in general across the board are aging. That's nationally speaking. Yep. So there's a move to how do you create more and more farmers as folks are aging out. Uh, So it's of critical importance for us to bring our youth in. For us, obviously, it's urban farming, uh, to train our youth, you know, 16, 17, 18, 20, to get their hands in the dirt, to understand the importance, critical nature of food, where food comes from, and even to relate it to climate change as well, you know, there's less transportation, there's less emissions, uh, you know, you're healing the soil, you're remediating the soil, and all the benefits that, that growing uh, uh, will cause, all the good benefits. But it's to get youth involved in that and to also understand how the health of our community is affected if we are not growing our own food, if we're not paying attention um, to our health and how that affects us as, as a group of people, and particularly in neighborhoods uh, suffering from some of the highest uh, health issues like diabetes, uh, you know, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, etc. So it's connecting our youth to understand how all of those things play together and therefore the importance of learning about growing food. Connecting the dots of... Um some of these gaps in our world, you know, and, and this certainly has been high on people's radar these last three weeks, but it's it's been a primary thread that has been very active these last five, six, seven years um, in our world of how food is grown. You know, the idea of local food and um, organically grown food and food access for 
you know, neighborhoods uh, that were, you know, suffering from, you know, as Leah Peniman says it very bluntly, food apartheid. And, you know, you say the word farm and you say the word farmer. And I think for most people, like a very static image comes to mind. A farm is a relatively big piece of land in the middle of the country, and the farmer is a white man. And these images are standing in the way of creativity and strategic thinking that allow us to um, give access to everybody to, to know how to farm and to embrace farming. And the other thing that you mentioned is this idea of our seniors and the aging out of our the majority of our farm population. There is this disproportionate, you know, wealth being held in the older generations. We need the young people to farm, but they don't necessarily have the the money to get the land to grow the farms that we're going to need later. Like there's this, we have a couple of serious disconnects in our in our farm food chain of growing farmers. And this is, I think, where the Urban Farming Institute is helping on like 17 of these levels, Patty. Yeah, no, we, we are, every everything you've said, uh, we're, we're working on in many different ways. Uh, so again, our, our, the, the folks that we do the work with, it's, it's usually actually a, a diverse class, nine times out of 10, uh, certain, absolutely uh, a majority of people of color. Because of the amount of graduates we've had, people leave us and, and basically tout the benefits of urban farming wherever they go. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Patty Spence is the president and CEO of the Boston-based Urban Farming Institute, which since 2013 has been re-envisioning urban land use and modeling the concept of urban farming while building community. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. Incubating anything successfully takes knowledge and knowing and skills in many cases, sometimes skills we learn as we go, like as parents. In its most specific instances, people sometimes refer to such as institutional knowledge, but I also think of this as cultural literacy, a term I often use as where I think gardening should be positioned in our world. It should be an integral part of our cultural literacy, like language, or reading, or the arts, or sciences, or nature, or kindness. When we think of institutional or cultural knowledge, it is what we know or should know just by being in a place immersed in and experiencing the culture we swim in all around us. Each of our individual cultural literacies is comprised of the landscape, the language, the ways, the colors, the sounds, the seasons, the songs, the lessons layered onto and into our ever-forming selves throughout our lives. It is all that we put into our hearts and minds through what we spend our time doing and where we direct our attention, and it is never done. We add knowledge, even without knowing it, to this literacy every day 
every week, every year, compliments of the experiences, people, activities, and things sometimes to which we have paid our attention. In this world and in our lives, where we choose to direct our attention is essentially who we are choosing to be. The sum of all our parts and our parceled out attention. It is perhaps a literacy and a currency worth cultivating more carefully, more consciously. I, for one, am off to sow and then incubate, in the sense of watering and, if needed, offering wind and frost protection to my fall carrots, beets, onions, and garlic. What about you? What are you incubating right now? As we come back to our conversation with Patty Spence of the Urban Farming Institute in Boston, she's sharing the importance of collaboration and cross-pollination with like-minded organizations for the Urban Farming Institute's work and success. We also work with many like-minded people from the restaurants. Uh, our farm operation does uh, sell produce to restaurants, but they're usually restaurants that are looking for locally grown produce, grown by the community. The recipes that are created through this, the, the seasonal uh, produce that they use, it, it's, all, it's all its own ecosystem. But also, UFI has always been a spokesperson uh, for the movement in general, um, the urban farming movement. To, and to the degree where also we have worked with very closely, since I've been here and before I arrived, with the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural, Re Agricultural Resources. We have partnered with them to create six urban farming conferences. Uh, so we're a thought leader in this space too, where we pull together all of the uh, urban farmers, not just in Massachusetts, but in New England and going as far as Virginia and Canada and everything in between to have these conversations. And we do have some of the tough conversations as well. You know, people of color and, and farming and our conferences talk about best practices for farming, marketing, how to manage your greenhouse, uh, soil. So we cover every part of farming in our urban farming conferences. The pandemic has, um, you know, had the programs contract for now in person. How are the farms doing and what have been some of the ways you've been able to adapt? When are we looking forward to another conference? Could it be digital? Well, the key, the key word seems to be pivot. <laughs> yeah. We yeah, pivot every day, it seems. Well, number one, as, as many of my friends would call in March, you know, what, what, what TV show are you watching or something? I would say I'm working 10 to 12 hour days. We never stopped working. We were considered, agriculture was considered essential and still is essential services. So we never stopped. We never stopped. Uh, our volunteer coordinator is, has become a farmer, a full farmer. Uh, my goal was to keep the entire team together, and which we have. So we've all changed roles. Our person doing fit around the farm is doing deliveries. Our person that works on farm site development is doing deliveries right now. Uh, we put every, we created, our farm manager created a, a virtual farm stand 
and uh, we've been doing orders through that. But we've had some other things that were already planned that we had to continue with. Uh, we we have a brand new greenhouse, uh, actually at the Fowler Clark Epstein Farm, our headquarters in Mattapan, and uh, we had our first set of greens, uh, our seedling sales this year, and that's why we needed the virtual farm stand to figure out how to get seedlings to people, since we wouldn't be opening up. That went flawlessly. We also have been able to actually hire three more people since mid March, because without the volunteers. Uh, it would be very difficult for us to get all the work done. And as far as physical distancing, we all have masks, we, we have gloves, but we've set up the way we farm a little bit differently. Each farmer has his or her own farm site, and they're pretty much there on their own. And we have just broached the conversation, could we bring in one or two seasoned volunteers, volunteers that you know already know how to do this, uh, to help each farmer at their site. So we've just approved that we would do that as well. And um, we've been able to get uh, COVID-relating fundings to get some of the PPE equipment um, that, that we need. And being good neighbors, anybody that needs masks or gloves or sanitizer, we freely give that out. Now, another we haven't decided to do the, the full farm stand, there are a lot more regulations now to do it safely, and we always err on the side of caution, very much so. So what we're going to do is something a little bit different. It starts Friday. We're just going to create bags. It's, it, we're just going to create bags filled with produce. Uh, we'll give the value of the bag, and we're just going to say pay what you can. And if you can't pay it all, that's fine too. So so it's sort of like a, a uh, an honor system um uh, CSA kind of. Exactly. It's, it's exactly that. So we're coming up with creative ways to get food to people. And also if we have excess food based on any given week, we have an elder organization that actually delivers all of our excess food to seniors in need, seniors that can't get out of the house. And this will be the third year that they've done that for us too. So where the farm operation uh, certainly has a revenue line item, shall we say. I've said to the farmers, I'm not really too worried about that you know, line item right now. The most important thing because of the, the pandemic and uh, folks that have lost their jobs is to feed people. And that is our mission uh, right now for this year is to simply feed people. Another creative program that came out of this, it's the Build 100 Grow Boxes campaign. I saw that. Yeah, great. Tell us about it. Oh, it's so exciting. If anything excites me, it's this right now. <laughs> um, it's so much fun. We've already built 20 boxes. As you probably know, seeds are flying all out of the catalogs right now. Uh, I, I mean, some seeds you can't even get out there. Everybody wants to grow food because they're home. So we want to make sure in our communities uh, that we are able to help people do that. We really don't want people suddenly digging a hole in the backyard and trying to grow because I don't know what the soil is like and they might not know how to do the soil testing. Uh, so we're recommending that we people uh, obtain grow boxes and they're four by eight, four by six, they're four by four. Or if, if you have a back problem or you're a senior, we'll put it up on legs, you know, two foot, three foot high so that you don't have to bend. The enthusiasm is so infectious. People are already sending their pictures, and I got a picture the other day of a, a beautiful 
uh, spinach salad. They said, oh, this is from this is from my grow box. Oh, that's <laughs> so great. It is so exciting. And that's going to lead us. Uh, and, and let me describe that a little bit. We we bring the wood. We build the box. There's a bio barrier, a textile landscape material, fabric, whatever you might want to call it. We fill it with wonderful soil, and uh, then we give a sampling of seedling plants. Oftentimes, people are ordering seedlings from us as well, uh, some instruction. And then we are trying to take this opportunity to create videos now to go with those boxes. But we're always there to answer questions if people have them. Uh, but a lot of everybody doesn't have a backyard, and we're very aware of that. Uh, so we're we're about to embark on the porch campaign. <laughs> Nice. And um, actually, my own mother uh, will, will be a role model. My mother is growing uh, collard greens, callaloo, peppers, uh, rosemary, sage, thyme, string beans, two tomato plants, and potatoes on her porch. <laughs> and my mom is 90. Just to let you know, my mom is 90. <laughs> well, there you go. If if she can do it, people, we can all do it. And what's so, what's so hopeful about this too, Patty, is that you know, you, you think about, like, you look out at your backyard and you say, oh, I, it's just so much work if I want to renovate it and make a big garden. And But one grow box seems so possible and so manageable. And, and then you get them with that spinach salad and then they've got the gardening bug, right? These particular folks, um, I actually have been encouraging them to grow for, it could be, it could be 12 years. <laughs> And they, they, they had the space, but I said, look, the grow box is easier, weeding is easier, etc. And they have the bug now. They absolutely have it. And another friend, they've used the porch uh, and to integrate the growing for their son into his online schoolwork. And the son is about, I don't know, 13, maybe, maybe 13. Oh, and they're eating great. salad off of their porch right now. Oh, just there's magic there. Like not only, you know, growing young farmers, but we are seeding, you are seeding the future with, with dedicated gardeners. And because they are, you know, organic and it's based on best practices that way, you are, you know, affecting the environment. You are feeding the pollinators. You are Absolutely. affecting the watershed and being able to see all of our yard and garden space as mini farms for the environment and for our tables. It just, it changes so much potential in, in some of the things we are struggling with in our world right now. And when we talk about struggling, I, I feel that we aren't uh, speaking enough about the mental health of, of all of us as a nation. Yeah. And um, this is just one of the best things to do uh, to at least temporarily uh, take your mind off of things. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, to just be able to work in the soil. And now things grow so rapidly in the season now that the you're looking at a tomato plant that, you know, is growing every day. You're looking at lettuce that's growing every day. And um, so it's very exciting. It, even to explain something like uh, uh, a kale, uh, you've got to remind people, don't rip up the whole kale plant. <laughs> Just take the leaves off and you'll have kale through Thanksgiving dinner, maybe even beyond that. So it, 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 and people don't know enough about growing because we've, we've left the land. 
you know, our grandparents did this. Most grandparents and great grandparents, someone was doing something with the land and yeah. we left all that. Right. So there's not a lot of institutional knowledge from families. Families might remember, oh, you know, people farmed, but they don't remember the how. They don't remember the how. So it's bringing all of that back. So that's of critical importance. And then I'm going to jump for a second uh, to also talk about farm design. Uh, because all of this was, was new, um, we've had someone that's worked with us um, from the very beginning uh, to create, how do we create these farms? Once Article 89 was passed, it didn't mean anybody really knew how to do it. <laughs> so, so we started some of those first official farms and, you know, from landscape design to what's the right size shed to signage. We've worked with the city and so many other partners to design these efficient farms. And one of the things that we learned is that every site is different. So we're in the process right now of actually coming up with a document that really talks to how do you do this? How do, how do you build a farm? What, what is needed? And then one of the most important things in building a farm are your neighbors. We never build a farm unless we're wanted. <laughs> If the neighbors don't want us, we're not going to be there. And also, we always have to make sure that our neighbors are first and foremost, that the, you know, the farms look a certain way, and, and that obviously neighbors have access to the fresh-grown produce. And uh, many of our farms have a few grow boxes there, and some of the local neighbors can actually grow food out of those grow boxes. Uh, so we have to be working with our neighbors at all times as we do this work. That's of critical importance. It's kind of like our kids, right? Like we grow them better with a village. And um, if if we uh, see them and position these spaces as assets, uh, then everybody's in. Yes. And, and what uh, when you look at our headquarters now, again, this will happen at some point. It will not happen this summer. But it's it's worth it's worth the time to describe what we would have done this summer because we all we'll get back to this again. When I say we're the the hub of urban farming, it can mean many things. Um, how do you get people interested in fresh food? How do you get people growing food? There's no one way to attract folks. So we had set up something for the summer where you basically enter our farm and um, you learn all about us under a tent. Uh, then you go up to our farm stand, but you're passing many vendors who are selling all kinds of, you know, herbs and teas and healthy products. Uh, then you actually get to our farm stand and you, you know, purchase the food that you're that you want. And then, for example, if string beans are in season, you'll head into our teaching kitchen, which is in the barn on the first floor, and you might learn how to make spicy green beans. And you get to taste it, learn how to make it from one of our chefs. And then after that, you get a book or a recipe. This is how you do the spicy green beans. Then you get the list of workshops that we have coming up. It could be pickling. It could be how to grow your own mushrooms. It could be a food as medicine workshop. And then as you exit, uh, you've got uh, music playing. It could be for a band, a steel band from Jamaica playing. Or we might be doing some salsa over here. Uh, so we had just gotten a grant uh, to bring art, more arts and culture to the farms because I just don't know how how you particularly will how I'll interest you. So basically, we'll have every possible way to interest you, <laughs> to tasting to farm stands, to information to music to right. dance. 
whatever it takes. So though that's on hold right now, we absolutely will come back to that. And getting back to the urban farming conference as well, we absolutely, we took two years off uh, because we were creating our headquarters and we are ready. We will be back in action uh, for March or April of 2021. At this point, uh, based on the climate, I would say we're on Zoom <laughs> or some format. Um, and if that could change, that's fine. But we're planning it right now. Great. People can find out more information at urbanfarminginstitute.org. Now, you mentioned um, the idea that you uh, get quite a few grants and um, – you know, you are applying for them all the time and you partner generously with all kinds of other groups and organizations, you know, private and uh, corporate and uh, government there in Boston. What are the other ways that you are funding this incredible work? Well, the farm operation, in order to teach farming, you really need a full farm operation. So under the umbrella of our nonprofit is a full operating farm operation, yep. and which means traditionally selling to, to restaurants and wholesalers. And we're still doing that business as restaurants open up, but some of it's a little bit different. Um, some folks, restaurants are creating meal kits. Um, some of our food trucks are creating meal kits and distributing them to key places. Uh, so, so we're doing the business, but just uh, a little bit um, differently at this point. Oh, I'll need you to repeat the question. I had one more thought, but I've got to hear the question again. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to know um, basically uh, how are ways that people can support you in, in oh. addition to you getting these grants and you selling food? Because at least two different programs that you just mentioned involved the farmers working really, really hard and growing this beautiful food and then you being able to offer them or not only bags of food, but also grow boxes and the volu- you know the time it takes to put them together and the materials for them, um, giving them away. How can people support you, Patty? Well, um, number one, um, outside of, the, of course, the farm operation, uh, but people can always go to our website and just do a straight uh, donation through PayPal or credit card. But many, many people right now are actually donating to help us build as many grow boxes as possible, uh, which I found very heartwarming. Some folks don't have the space, but they have the money. So they're, they're sending us a donation to build someone else's grow box. And that's extremely helpful. So that's one major way uh, to, to, to donate to us right now. And uh, the other thing that if I were thinking of things that would be helpful, uh, we would love to actually bring on a couple more of our past graduates and so just for the summer, you're looking at about 20 weeks. So that's another, another way to donate. So the grow boxes and helping us bring more, more people on so we can grow more food for our community. And uh, lastly, we are now looking uh, at uh, our kicking off our capital campaign um, to actually purchase the property. The plan has always been for us to purchase the property. And it's really important in this day and time uh, that folks of color actually own this farm yep. uh, right out. And our partners, Historic Boston, the best partners in the world, um, you know, we, we've started conversations. It's something that would not happen. Uh, it would take a few years for it all to happen. But we are, you know, considering, uh, you know, really starting that campaign right now as well. Wonderful. I 
just so appreciate your time and your knowledge and heart for this work. And thank you very much for uh, being a guest on the program today, Patty. It's lovely to talk to you after meeting you all those months ago now. Thank you as well. Thank you. Keep doing the great work. Patricia Spence is the president and CEO of the Boston-based Urban Farming Institute, cultivating and supporting urban farmers and communities, as well as urban land use since 2013. With a mission to develop and promote urban farming to engage individuals in growing food and building a healthy community. For more information about UFI or to donate in support of their work, go to urbanfarminginstitute.org, O-R-G. Join us again next week when, in this very unusual back-to-school season here in the U.S., we're joined by Julie Cerny, whose book, The Little Gardener, provides some unusual and inspirational guidance for parents, grandparents, caregivers, and educators who want to help children explore the natural world through gardening. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To see many photos of the Urban Farming Institute's farm, farmers, and greater community programming, check out the episode notes for this week's show at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Together, we expand what we mean and what we dream when we claim the words garden and gardeners. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.